This is, uh, tonight marks the midpoint of David's second epic. Obviously, these mid, these epics of David's life don't come with like clear markers. These, these aren't, and it's not just like an outline that we just kind of looked at kind of a decent way to break up his life for teaching purposes. These are those kind of roadmark things that we all have. If we all think about it, we have those points in our life that are just watershed moments. When we look back on them, we know that the entire texture of our lives changed from that point on. Um, we all have them. A lot of us, you know, if we were asked on the spot, we'd say, when I met my spouse. You know, that's, that's a big one, of course. And sometimes they're the, the cultural markers like graduations and promotions and things. Or most of us, a lot of us have that BC marker, you know, before Christ, which basically just means... Those were really fun stories, and I don't want to feel guilty about telling them, so I just say those were before I was saved. That way I can keep telling the stories without feeling bad, but you know how we do. Admit it. But no, we, uh, these are moments in David's life where everything changed from that point on, where once this one thing happened, he changed in a way where he never really went back. I'm kind of a deconstructionist, so most of mine, um, I can name the book or the lecture or the conversation I had that once I had it, I couldn't go back, like... Once I knew that thing, everything had changed. And that was kind of what happened to David when Saul threw his spear at David. Like from that point on, his life was never the same. Um, He had had a perfectly charmed life up till then. Everything had kind of gone his way. And as soon as Saul threw that spear, everything had changed. But we all have those moments in our life. For some people, it's negative things. It's a diagnosis. Um, It's a failure. For other people, it's a success or Having a child, some people have a baby and they look at them, they know the world will never be the same now that they have a baby. Other people just seem to have them every other week and nothing changes, those guys. But no, so this is, in David's life, we're not just split it up for the purpose of teaching. These are whole different Davids in each of these epics where his, his nature, the way he saw life changed so dramatically from one point to another that it's almost like it's not even the same guy. And the coolest thing about the Psalms is we don't just listen to the narrative of his life and see that these things happen to him. We get to see through his art how they changed him. We talked last week about two different psalms, one written early in his life where David was like, put me on trial, Lord, and, and try my soul. And then later in his life, he was like, do not put your servant on trial, God, for no one can stand before you. You can see how much he had changed. That the, and if you don't get that David was human and that he developed and grew and changed, he can almost sound schizophrenic in his psalms. Like, he'll say one thing in a psalm and then the very next psalm, because we didn't put them chronologically, the very next psalm he'll say something 180 degrees different. And that just, if, if we're honest with ourselves, we're the same way. If we look back at the way we saw the world, the way we saw things 20 years ago, hopefully we don't see them exactly the same now. Hopefully we've grown and changed and we have a deeper understanding of God. And I feel like David's psalms... Uh, reflect that. But the good news is this uh, epic is almost over. This is the toughest epic. This is where David really kind of gets into the darker side of himself in his art and there's a lot of his anger and a lot of his feelings about injustice. Spoiler alert, he does become king and his next, uh, his next epic is probably his most glorious in his art anyway where he, it's his most optimistic, his, his most worshipful in his next epic. He kind of ushers in public worship into Jerusalem, which hadn't been that way yet, which comes with a whole new set of music, choral music that he wrote for 
um, mass worship, corporate worship, which is exciting. So, but we do have to finish up this epic. Uh, and in this epic, we started to lay a foundation for dealing with our pain, our anger, our disappointment, our sadness, our helplessness by facing it and leaning into it through this ancient spiritual discipline known as lament, where we face our pain, we name it, we take it to God, and then we look for our but. We say that everything is awful right now, God. Nothing is going right, but I still choose to praise you. Um, our tendency is to try to distract ourselves away from that pain a million different ways. And some of these aren't always bad. Uh, some of this, I mean, has anybody ever counted blessings? Has anybody ever, as, a, as, a t- try, as an attempt to try to get away from pain, we count our blessings? That's a good thing. It's a good thing. But uh, sometimes... Um, the pain will not go away. We can't fend off those negative emotions. And so we have to face them. We have to go to God with them. And we have to uh, lament. We have to purge our souls to God and say, this is, this is not right. Uh, and what I love is we have a whole history of people in the Bible who didn't sugarcoat the way they felt, who went straight to God. And I love that they went to God with it. And that we have a record of it, that God didn't hide those people and go, yeah, they went through a dark time over there. We don't talk about that. He... He put it right there for us to examine in the Scripture. And David's Psalms are one of those places where we get to look into the heart of somebody who was struggling. Well, last week um, we got into some of David's angry Psalms, what we call his imprecatory Psalms, where he's actually cursing people. And we talked about how these outbursts didn't generally always line up with his feelings about these people. He would curse somebody that he he loved, he knows he loved, and he would confess his love to them, and he would mourn them when they would die, and... And that David had this odd tendency to get really angry at the people he loved. Not like us. Like when we think about our kids, we never have anything but positive, loving, joyful emotions. You know, we're not like David. None of us have those days where one day we love our spouse more than we can think and then the next day we want to strangle them. You know, we don't deal with that, but David did, right? David uh, got really, really mad at the people he loved and he shared it um, in his art. And we got into that last night. Well, tonight we're going to talk about the why. Hopefully a little deeper version of why we need to lament. Why is this so important? Why face our pain? For many of us, knowing that our heart needs a voice is not enough. For many of us, knowing that lament allows us to have integrity and be a whole person isn't enough. Uh, we've been distracting ourselves. We've been working harder. We've been playing harder. We've been doing whatever we can to distract ourselves from pain, and it's worked. So why lament and I'm going to do this in a roundabout way we're going to do a little bit of neurobiology tonight actually we're going to do a little bit of David's story we're going to do a little bit of David's arts you're going to have to track with me because there's going to be a roundabout approach emotions neurobiologists have learned that emotions generate in our limbic cortex which is kind of the inner part of our brain that's super similar to the brain of every other animal if you look the limbic cortex is the dark part. That's a rat, a cat, a monkey, and a human. The limbic cortex is very similar. What separates us as humans is the expanded cerebral cortex around the outside. But the limbic cortex is very, very similar. Most of the major discoveries since doctors um, kind of gained the ability to scan the brain while it's working um, have happened in this area, the limbic cortex. We've learned that the limbic cortex is a drug dealer. Um, when stimuli hits the limbic cortex, limbic cortex tells the brain to secrete chemicals into the body that only take a few seconds to hit the, the entire body and affect the entire body. 
So when the stimuli is positive, the body is flooded with chemicals that make it feel lighter and, and more uh, energized. Uh, when the stimuli is negative, the body feels heavy, maybe nauseous. Sometimes we get a fight or flight. And the negative, uh, or in the body, what we call these things are feelings because that's exactly what they are. What the limbic cortex does is it takes raw stimuli, just data, just an event that happens, and it translates it into something we can actually feel in our body. That's where we get the word feelings because it's, it's the way our body responds to the chemicals that the limbic cortex sends when the stimuli comes. So raw data comes in and it gets translated into something you actually feel in your physical body. What's another amazing thing we learned is that the limbic cortex moves much faster than the cerebral cortex. We think most of us tend to think that, uh, and this gives some people problems, but most people tend to think that stimuli happens like this. It comes into our cerebral cortex, we rationalize it, we decide how we should feel about it, it hits our limbic cortex, and that's how we feel. So we see something, we decide, is that good or bad? And then we send it on down to the emotions, and the emotions feel appropriate. Um, this is not actually accurate. This is not how it works. We've actually learned that all stimuli comes into the brain via the spinal cord, which is down here. It comes up, which means the, the limbic cortex gets first swing at it. It gets all the data first. And usually what we found out is it actually goes stimuli, limbic response, chemical flood, cerebral justification is what they call it. So we experience it. Our limbic cortex responds to it, and then our frontal cortex has to kind of justify that feeling. It scripts a narrative that fits what we're feeling. And so we think we're feeling that because it's appropriate. What's actually happening is we're deciding what's appropriate for the feelings, and that's what we're scripting. So if we feel angry, then we go, why am I angry? Oh, that's why I'm angry. And we just tell ourselves why we feel so angry. So our limbic cortex actually comes second. And believe it or not, this is going to be important. The reason uh, it moves in this order, I think, is super interesting, but I think it also has to do with why we lament. Because the limbic cortex actually generates all of our language. This is kind of interesting. This is something they've learned fairly new. When a baby cries, it doesn't, nothing in the cerebral cortex, anytime a baby vocalizes, it coos, it cries, it makes any noise whatsoever, the limbic cortex, nothing is going on. So a baby is not rationalizing anything when it's making noise at first. Uh, but the limbic cortex lights up like a light bulb when a baby is vocalizing. So we know that all the language, all the verbalizing we have starts in the limbic cortex. But there's one problem with that. And this is why um, when you hit your thumb with a hammer, you don't go, what would the appropriate response be to hitting my... Oh, that's right. Ow! Like, we don't, you know something very, very primal will come out. Ow, ow! And then we'll go, huh? then we'll rationalize and go, oh man, that hurts. That really, really hurts. We'll put language to it second, but the first sound that comes out is usually super primal and usually doesn't have uh, real words to it. Our, our first guttural that comes from the limbic system um, is almost uh, barbaric, almost like a baby. Tonight, we're going to look at an event in David's life that I think is going to and knowing this, how the limbic cortex works, I think is going to help us understand what David does, that it goes stimuli, reaction, then verbal processing. And tonight's passage we're actually going to read is David's Psalm 59. 
For the choir director, a psalm of David, regarding the time Saul sent soldiers to watch David's house in order to kill him. To be sung to the tune, do not destroy. Just so you know, David wrote about six or eight different psalms to that tune. He must have really liked that melody because he wrote a lot of psalms to the tune, do not destroy. Um, Rescue me from my enemy, O God. Protect me from those who have come to destroy me. Rescue me from these criminals. Save me from these murderers. They have set an ambush for me. Fierce enemies are out there waiting. Lord, though I have not sinned or offended them, I have done nothing wrong. Yet they prepare to attack me. Wake up. See what is happening and help me. The Lord God of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, wake up and punish these hostile nations. Show no mercy to the wicked traitors. Interlude. They come out at night, snarling like vicious dogs as they prowl the streets. Listen to the filth that comes from their mouths. Their words cut like swords. After all, who can hear us, they sneer. But Lord, you laugh at them. You scoff at all the hostile nations. You are my strength. I wait for you to rescue me. For you, O God, are my fortress. In his unfailing love, my God will stand with me. He will let me look down in triumph on all my enemies. Don't kill them, for my people soon forget such lessons. Stagger them with your power. And bring them to their knees, O Lord, our shield. Because of the sinful things they say, because of the evil that is on their lips, let them be captured by their pride, their curses, and their lies. Destroy them in your anger. Wipe them out completely. Then the whole world will know that God reigns in Israel. Interlude. My enemies come out at night, snarling like vicious dogs as they prowl the streets. They scavenge for food, but... Go to sleep unsatisfied, but as for me, I will sing about your power. Each morning I will sing with joy about your unfailing love. For you have been my refuge, a place of safety when I am in distress. O my strength, to you I sing praises. For you, O God, are my refuge, the God who shows me unfailing love. This is the word of the Lord. I've been wanting to do this for several weeks, but... This can get a little academic, but I figured, you know, I'm already neck deep in neurobiology, so if I'm going to put it anywhere, I should put it here. Um, Jewish poetry doesn't function like our poetry. It's not built on a rhyme scheme um, and usually doesn't have a rhythmic structure to it. Uh, It's what we call structural poetry. And C.S. Lewis brought up an interesting point where he said, isn't it ironic how God chose a form of poetry that would be just as potent in any language that it was translated to, to be the kind that he recorded in the Bible. If he had chosen rhyme poetry, it would only work in Hebrew. But because he chose structural poetry, it can actually be analyzed in any language, which is kind of a cool point. Um, But tonight's psalm is written in what we call chiastic structure, which means that they pair up particular ideas that match. And tonight uh, is a fairly easy chiasm. And so I decided to take this one to kind of break it down and explain. Can everybody read that? How this works? This is how a chiasm works. So, verses 1 and 2 and verses 16 and 17 would have the same theme. I wish I could have fit the whole psalm up there. But if you want to go home and look at it, uh, both saying that God is the protector and, and the refuge. And then verses 3 and 4 uh, would talk about the enemy's attack, how fierce this ambush is. Uh, And then again, he repeats it back in 14 and 15. Verses 6 and 7, he talks about the things they said, their lying lips, the horrible things they said about him. And he goes and repeats it again in verse 12. If you've got your Bible, you can open and look. It's pretty fascinating. 
Verse 80 talks about how big God is compared to how small. And I think in verse 80 says, you laugh at them. And then he repeats it again in verse 11 um, when he says, completely destroy um, uh, all these small people or whatever. And then verse 9 and 10 would be what, in a, in a chiastic structure, would be considered the main point of the poem, which is, you are my strength. I wait for you. Rescue me. For you, O God, are my fortress, and his unfailing love, my God, will stand with me. He will let me look down and triumph on all my enemies. Most of the Psalms are built in some form of chiastic structure. So this would be like if we heard a poem roses are, that started, Roses are red, violets are blue. We wouldn't go, I wonder what the, the symbolic significance of the rose is. Like, why did he choose violets? Why did he choose to talk about violets? We would know the roses and violets are the setup for what he really wants to say, right? We don't sit there and analyze, you know, the, the spiritual significance of roses and violets. That's just roses are red, violets are blue, and then we listen for the main point. One of the original readers of chiastic poetry would know that the stuff on the sides is a little bit important, but the thing that the poet wants to say is in the center of the chiasm. This would be a, a pyramid chiasm. Um, they have other ones that kind of go up and down. They'll be like uh, A sub 1, B sub 1, C... B sub 2, A sub 2, and then they'll make multiple little pyramids. But um, this is a single chiasm with the main point right in the middle. And this is kind of the way David wrote his poetry. So the main point that David is wanting to make in this whole thing is that God is his strength. God is his refuge and his fortress. Now, so in, in all of this kind of imprecatory venting where David is calling down curses on these enemies who are seeking him, his main point is God is my strength. That's what he wants coming out. There's another reason I think this is important, and I am going to tie this all the way back around to the neurobiology, is from the story it comes from. If you remember in the beginning it says, this is a psalm written about the time Saul sent people to David's house to kill him. And this comes from uh, 1 Samuel 19, the event, and it's only two verses, and here's how it reads. Then Saul sent troops to watch David's house. They were told to kill David when he came out the next morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, If you don't escape tonight, you will be dead by morning. So she helped him climb through the window, and he fled and escaped. That's the whole story. Two verses. Michal gets wind that her dad is going to kill David. So in the middle of the night, she wakes him, and he escapes out a window. But here's the question. In this short, tiny little narrative, when does David have time to stop and write a poem? The answer is obvious. He didn't. He didn't have time to write a poem. David had to have written this song later about this moment. Um, He had to come back. He didn't have time when his life was hanging in the balance to build a chiastic structure poem to God. He wasn't like crying out from the depths of the pit. This introduces a new aspect of lament where lament isn't just calling out to God when we're broken. Lament is also how we process pain of the past. It's how we process things that have hurt that we don't know what to do with, things that are sitting in our past and we don't know how to handle. We can bring those back in a lament to God um, to process them. There's another reason why I think this psalm was written later in David's life and it's these two verses. Listen to the filth that comes out of their mouths. Their words cut like swords. Because of the sinful things, this is both sides of the chiasm, because of the sinful things they say, because of the evil that is on their lips, let them cap- be captured in their pride, their curses and their lies. 
in the midst of this life or death escape, I can't imagine David being too hung up in the mean words they were saying about him. Like in that moment, he was probably just, I just need to get out of here. But this does reveal something about the power of words. The old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Bold-faced lie, we tell kids. That's just not, a, not true at all. Anybody who has ever um, had their spouse say something truly mean to them knows that words stick around. Anybody who's ever heard their kids scream, I hate you, even though you know kids are going to say that, they know that that's going to stick around. Anybody who's ever still has their parents' criticizing voice in the back of their head every single day knows that words stick around. David, uh, after the bruises and bumps of getting out the window and escaping, after the adrenaline has cooled down, it's ironic that the thing he can't get out of his head were the mean words they were saying as they were sneaking up on the house, hearing them talk about him, hearing the accusations that that's what, when he goes back to God to process this pain, it's ironic that what comes up is those horrible things they were saying about me, those terrible things they said. I can't get that out of my head. It's, it's re- God, judge them for those terrible things they said about me. We like to pretend like words aren't a big deal, but we know better. We know that when someone says something about us, that's painful, those things stick around and have to be processed. Our words don't just go away. They, they cut like a sword, as David says in this psalm. But here's what I love most about the timing of this psalm. It seems to me that David knows instinctively what neurobiologists are just now starting to figure out. And that's that we experience the stimuli, we feel the emotions, and then we process it rationally. David lives through a near-death experience. This is actually early in his exile when all those feelings of injustice and, and, uh, and anger are still very, very fresh. And what was his conclusion as he relived and processed this event? The frustration of feeling like he had done nothing wrong and the anger of feeling like God was asleep and the fear of feeling like he was pursued by wild animals is the way he said it. His conclusion, if the people that tell us about chiastic poetry are right, his conclusion as he processed it was, God is my strength. He is my fortress. So in the event he's feeling all the fear, he's feeling all the anger, he's feeling all the hurt about the things they said, he's feeling all this injustice knowing he had done nothing to ask for this, he had done nothing wrong, but as he processes it, and he brings all that truth into his art, he's able to say, God is my strength. God is my strength. So how do we respond to that? I grew up um, getting good grades in writing. I just always liked writing, and I guess positive reinforcement from my teachers encouraged me to write more. So I always wrote a lot. My senior year in high school, we were all forced to enter a short story in a writing contest. Um, everybody in senior English. And so I wrote my story and my girlfriend's story. My girlfriend won first place and I won second place. This was actually a terrifying event because I'm 99% sure she turned it in and had never read it. And so I was positive that they were going to ask her questions about it. We were going to get busted. And to make matters worse, the, the prize for first place was a $50 gift certificate to like the only restaurant in Leavenworth that classifies as nice. It was, an Itali- it was a, this Italian restaurant. This is back in the early 90s. I doubt it's there anymore. But 
But she won. She got first prize and took her mom to the restaurant for Mother's Day. I didn't get anything out of the deal. But that event scared me so much that I stopped writing other people's papers for them. Up till then, I did it all the time. Instead, I started doing what I called fluffing, where my roommate in college would come to me with like a one-page paper, and he would go, hey, dude, this has to be five pages. Can you fluff it? And he would throw it down, and I would turn his original work into five pages. I would stretch things. I would explain things better. I would... And so I had this conviction that you've got to do the original work. It's got to be your ideas. After that, I can stretch it and fluff it for you, but I can't come up with the raw ideas anymore. That was too scary. But what I think David does here is he fluffs history a little bit. I think he takes this event that really happened. He can't change any of it. He can't change the pain. He can't change the fear. He can't change the the feelings of injustice. Like that wasn't fair. The, the, what really happened, happened. And he has to deal with that. But that doesn't mean he can't add more truth to it. And this sounds like I'm saying, hey, every cloud has a silver lining. That's not what I'm saying. This, this isn't just, you know, if you think positive, if you just focus on the good things, if you turn on some positive, encouraging Caleb, you're going to be fine. <laughs> i got to sneak in my Caleb jabs wherever I can get them. No, he has to be accurate with the event. The, the limbic system will not be lied to. This is one of the things we know from neurobiology. You can't lie to your limbic system. It creates what we call cognitive dissonance. When you feel something about an event and you try to convince yourself it's not that bad, it creates cognitive dissonance. Your limbic system knows how bad it was and you're sitting there trying to convince yourself it wasn't and try and talk yourself out of it. And it, it creates a dislocation, a disconnect in the brain. We have to be honest with what happens. You can't lie to your limbic cortex. And this is what makes lament so powerful. And the reason I think is why we need to lament. Our emotions are what they are. Jesus said in John 16, you know, that in this world you will suffer. In this world you will experience pain. You will know suffering. We can't change that. Here on earth you'll have many trials and sorrows. So if we experience what Jesus said we would experience, part of our life is going to be negative. We're going to feel pain. We're going to feel discomfort. We're going to feel sorrow. And every time we recall that event, our body's going to get that little shot of, of chemicals that make us feel down about it. But because of the way God has wired the human brain, we can while reliving those negative things, write in more truth. As long as it's true. You can't lie to your limbic system. That doesn't mean you can't tell more truth. This awful thing happened to me. They said this horrible thing about me. I lost this. I got this call. I was really looking forward to this and my hopes got dashed. Our body feels all those feels. But we can choose to fluff the narrative. Because there are some things we know to be true. We know that Jesus loves us and gave himself for us. We know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. I can't believe for one second that that the human narrative got so boogered up and that everything got so tangled up and sin got so big that Jesus said, you know what, I'm going to go down, I'm going to clear the slate, and we're going to let him just try again. 
but nothing really changes. You still have to be pretty much perfect to get here. You still got to pretty much, you know, live the ideal life. I can't believe that. I believe Jesus came because God was not okay being without us. And that is a truth that I feel like we can write into our narrative. We can go back and say, this terrible thing happened, but I know that Jesus loves me and he gave himself for me. We can say that I, I, I experienced this terrible loss and I don't get it and it wasn't right and it shouldn't have happened, but I do know that Jesus loves me and he gave himself for me. We can write that into the narrative. We can, put, we can wire that in to all those feels when we're, when we're experiencing pain, when we're reliving pain, when we're taking our lament to God and we're saying, why did this happen, God? Were you asleep? I don't get it. But I know that Jesus loves me and he gave himself for me. We may not understand much. We may not get, you know, we always try to say the things, well, God can turn everything. Well, God's can, he's got a reason and blah, blah. And sometimes in our guts, we feel like that is just BS. Like, we just, it happens and we're like, there is, someone tells us that. And it, has anybody ever wanted to punch somebody when they're like, well, God has a plan. And you're like, Yeah. And you're about to stand in for the punch I'd love to give God about that plan right now. Like it, sometimes that does our heart no good. And all we have to say is, God, this is, this is not right. But I know you sent your son. And I, I may not know anything else. I may not be able to see anything else. I may not be able to understand anything else. But I know you sent your son because you love me. You are not okay being away from me. Whatever else it all looks like, I'm, I'm writing that into the narrative too. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fluff the story. I'm going to put in more truth. I can't lie. I can't change what happened. I can't go back and pretend like that wasn't painful. I can't go back and say, well, but God used it to make me the person I am, so I guess it's good. <laughs> no, we can't do that because we know it wasn't good. We know it wasn't right, some of the things that happened to us, some of the things we go through. But we can know that He loves us. He loves us so much He left heaven, entered our mess, came into our mess when He didn't have to, died a painful death that we were supposed to die because He loves us and was not okay being away from us. And if we don't write that into the narrative, then we're stuck with the pain. I think lament gives us an opportunity to do what David did. Frame, take all of this pain and frame it around this central truth that says, but I know Jesus loves me. He gave himself for me. And I can, I can pour out whatever pain and yuck, I can process anything around it because I know Jesus loves me and he gave himself for me. My life is a wreck. Nothing is going as planned. Everything is a mess. But Jesus died for me because he loves me. All true. I'm scared. I have no idea how I'm going to make it out of this. Nothing adds up. I'm sinking. But Jesus died for me because he loves me. All true. Two weeks ago, I challenged us to find our butt as we lament, as we are honest with our feelings and emotions. And so this week, I'd like to actually assign that as homework. Like, go home. Think of 
maybe something you haven't thought of in a while, something you've been through, something painful, something that you spend most of your time trying not to think about. Face it this week. Pull it up. Process it. And try to frame it in the context of, but I know Jesus loves me and gave himself for me. When I read the Old Testament and I bump into passages where I don't understand God, it happens all the time. I'll read a story and I'll be like, I don't, I don't even see how that could be the God of the New Testament. And, and I'm, I'm tempted to, to put upon God my understanding of that story. Like, oh, I guess God sometimes wipes out whole races. I don't know. Like, I'm, I want to put on God my understanding. And, and I love the first verse of Hebrews where it said, God in previous times has revealed himself in certain ways, but now this time in the fullest sense he's revealed himself in his son Jesus Christ the, the revelation that trumps all those other revelations where you're like if I can't see Jesus in that story then I'm, there's something I'm missing because all I know is the revelation of God culminates in Jesus who would give himself for us because he loves us so much and all the rest of the stories have to equal that story and our stories are no different we look back and some of them don't make any sense to us. Some of them are painful. Some of them are scary. Some of them are, have left scars that, that we'd rather not have. And we can't change any of that. But we can look at it and go, but all I know is this revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, giving Himself for me, stepping out of heaven into my mess because He loves me. That is the ultimate revelation. And, and whatever has happened in the past has to be seen in the context of that love. It has to. Of all the... One of the weird things about reading the Psalms is there are certain things we know that David didn't know. Um, we know that everybody's sinners. Like That's a revelation we've been given in the Scripture that David, I don't think, knew. In his early Psalms, I don't think David had that revelation that everybody messes up. I think he learned that later. And then there's other ones that are more humbling. There's some where uh, I think we have 10,000 times more reasons to worship God than David did. Like we, we get to see the cross. Like we get to see the full expression of God's love. And yet every now and then you read David's like zeal and exuberance for worship and it's humbling. It's like here's a guy who didn't have nearly as many reasons to worship God as I do. The guy who didn't have a full revelation of the cross, and this guy just dancing in the presence of God till he's naked. Like, this is somebody who understands worship in a way I feel like we should. One of the benefits of being New Testament believers and having the revelation we have is we get to script the cross into every story. We get to go back and look at, at every story in the context of a God who would sacrifice himself for us. So whatever else is going on, we know we serve a God who would sacrifice himself for us. That's the the underlying truth under every other truth is yes, but we serve a God who would sacrifice himself for us. This is not a secret formula that allows us to escape all pain and live healthy, wealthy, and wise. This isn't just positive thinking. In all honesty, our situation may not even get any better but Jesus said when we know the truth, the truth will set us free. And I think the best thing we can do with a lament is be honest with all of our truth. 
the truth that says this hurts and the truth that says, but Jesus loved me so much, he gave himself for me. We have to face all the truth when we lament. I know two truths. One, life is hard. Jesus said it would be. And two, he loved me so much he gave himself for me. I believe if we would commit our lives to knowing those two truths, we'd be better for it. Lord Jesus, we come to this table every week to declare one simple truth. That you loved us and you gave yourself for us. Whatever else we talk about, whatever else we feel, whatever else happens to us, whatever else we have to process and and go through, we can know one thing, and that's that you loved us and gave yourself for us. So tonight as we come to the table, would you let that truth be in our hearts, the bigger truth, the stronger truth, the, the overarching truth, that we never deny or turn away or hide from the pain of the world. Because you didn't. We meet it head on. We face it head on. Because we get to look at it next to this greater truth. And that is that you loved us, gave yourself for us. Bury that deep in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.